The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. It's been more than half a year since the protests sparked by the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. These protests have led to a reckoning in our whole society, but particularly inside companies, at our places of work. We're racing to confront and dismantle systemic racism in our organizations, and we need help. It's no surprise that there's been a huge increase in hiring for diversity experts. As we record this, it's one of the most in-demand jobs on LinkedIn. Hiring for these roles increased more than 90% last year. Think about that. So let's say you want to do this work. What does a career path look like? When I started, you know, I thought DEI was all one type of work, and it's not. You might recognize that voice. That's Dr. Darnisa Amante-Jackson. She joined us last June to talk about equity work. And I've asked her back today to talk about her own career journey, about what she's learned about careers in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I started with the big question. I wanted to know if she truly believes, after all that she's seen and done, that equity is possible for companies. Here's Darnisa. I think the work is absolutely possible. It's bigger than probable. And it is guaranteed when you're willing to put yourself all in for a greater good. So absolutely, Jesse, absolutely. So Darnisa, there's been a lot of demand for people who are doing work similar to the work that you were doing. And I wanted to talk about your career path, how you came to this. So start at the beginning. Let's call the beginning sometime around school. What did you think you would be doing with your career? I think, Jesse, I've been doing equity work from the womb. You know, I'm an 80s baby to date myself. I'm okay saying it. But I really, I grew up at the height of the crack epidemic in New York City. I saw a lot. And I came from a zip code that a lot of people didn't believe in. So when I started school, you know, I was often told that demography is my destiny. And not told in that way. It didn't sound so academic. But the zip code I grew up in is 11207. That's East New York, Brooklyn. This was not a zip code that a lot of people saw promise in. It wasn't an invested in zip code. And it wasn't popular. But I knew that I was bigger than my zip code. But I couldn't help thinking about the folks I saw strung out in parks. A lot of my classmates, many of which didn't have their parents at home to help them. All of us, all of us had a family member in jail hearing the conversations that my classmates were talking about in school, we weren't dreaming on astrophysicism. A lot of us were just dreaming to survive. And I felt like there had to be a way for people to just be, Jesse. You know, I think the biggest error around equity is people assume that equity is Robin Hood, That it's some sort of backdoor Robin Hooding where you're stealing from people to give to folks who don't deserve it. 
what equity really is, is giving people a chance to be their fullest authentic selves in absence of prejudice and systemic oppression that prevents people from achieving everything they can. And I grew up in a neighborhood where I feel like resilience was everybody's middle name. Now, in my own home, I was very privileged to have two grandparents who believed in education, who pushed me. But I feel like I've always been called to social justice because I feel like I'm called to the thing that I very rarely received in life. Hmm. And I'm still looking for it. (laughs) I just want to be seen. And the first thing I really wanted to do is I wanted to be a scientist. If racism wasn't real, I would have been somebody's marine paleoichthyologist. It's a thing, folks. It's a thing. I wanted to study prehistoric sharks. I wanted to discover an ancient species of shark. Darnisa, let's stay on sharks for a second. Okay. I'm here for sharks. <laughs> Which chapter of your life was that? When when was it that that was your vision for what you thought you would do, wanted to do? Well, really, it was probably from five Honestly, to to about 25, I lived in South Africa. And so there'd be times where we I would travel to Cape Town. I go, great white shark cage dive in. Okay. And I, there's something about the deep ocean and the wonder of mystery. I just love the mystery. I love the discovery. And I, and I wonder if this was the early inklings of me becoming an anthropologist and a historian. I always wanted to explore things that people never thought were possible or probable. There's something pretty cool about sharks, which is when sharks pass away, their entire bodies are cartilage. All that's left is teeth. Hmm. And you have to build this whole mystery around the body of this animal just based off of teeth. Hmm. And the stories we're able to tell just from teeth alone made me wonder how many other teeth we hadn't found, how many stories of sharks we hadn't found. And when I realized that that science path wasn't the way that I wasn't going to go. I still wanted to discover truths from these little remnants. And that's why I became an anthropologist. Tell me a little bit about what higher education was like for you. I, I had two distinct phases. I'm a Posse scholar. I'm a Posse alum. So I was a member of Brandeis Posse 5. And the Posse program is a merit-based scholarship for students from inner cities. And it's a full scholarship. And so I went from Brooklyn, New York to Waltham, Massachusetts. You know, I went to Brandeis, which is a historically Jewish college. And there was so much learning for me. I think it was the first time that I had really truly been exposed to a liberal arts education. And as a city person, I had never experienced nature or grass. I didn't realize, I think, the privilege of open spaces because that's not something I grew up with in New York City. So I felt like my experience in undergrad was really about understanding the world in a new way and realizing that the multiculturalism I expected in New York City does not present itself in the same way everywhere. So Brandeis, that's a lot of new. Think, yeah, where I learned how to have a difficult conversation, how to sit in multiple perspectives. You know, as a Christian on campus, Being in a dorm with over 90% Orthodox Jewish women in and of itself was a really powerful learning experience that had nothing to do with class. It was the first time that I realized that you could be different, that you could look different, that you could come from completely different walks in life, but have a middle ground that felt wonderful. 
And I think I carried that into Harvard, into my, my doctoral program, because I realized after having been in the classroom that some of that exploration, some of that deep questioning and inquiry about people, I just was not seeing in classes. I wasn't seeing it in my practice as a teacher, and I wanted to be different. I wanted to be better. And when I got to Harvard, I think it opened my mind up to the fact that this is systemic. My doctorate is in system-level leadership, so I was taught to really get to an even higher balcony stance than anthropology, which is if culture is everything, could there be a container even for culture itself? Could there be a way to get up on a balcony and look down on it and see it in a way you've never been taught to see it? And that's what I think my doctoral program really did for me. And the combination of those things, I think, have fully equipped me to be a part of really intense yet transformative equity conversations. That's why, Jesse, I know it's possible. I've seen it. I'm a living example of it done well. And I'm hopeful because sometimes even in the darkest moments, all you have is hope. And hope is both a noun and a verb. It's a state of being and it's a continuous action. Well, that that support you got from Posse sounds like it really was significant for you mm -hmm. in your life. With Posse, I felt invested in. I felt seen. And before you even go to college, you spend an entire year with your cohort getting ready to go. The whole premise is when you go to school for my early 90s folks with your Posse, right, you're more likely to actually stay. I had never done education, academics, or social justice in a cohort-type way before. And I'm even my doctoral program was a cohort. So clearly, I'm cohort-stricken in a good way. Break this down for a lot of our listeners, who I'm going to assume might not quite understand this aspect. And I think it's so critical. That meant that when you got to Brandeis, which you said was about as different for you as any place you had ever gone. Completely different. You went with a group of people who really understood where you were coming from in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. So how did that work? So it started by being referred by your high school guidance counselor or someone in your high school community. And then in the year that I applied, there were over 1,200 applicants for 100 positions. So we're talking about it was super highly selective. And if you're chosen, you're chosen as a cohort, a group of 10. In that cohort of 10 people, we would meet every single week after high school for two hours to do leadership development training. The whole point was it's bigger than just being together. It's are you purpose together? And Posse was the first time that I saw that when you get folks who can have different perspectives to have a common purpose, they can achieve change. This is why I believe in equity. That's exactly the way equity works. You know, democracy is not about us all believing the same thing. It's about our willingness to sit in these multiple perspectives, but we agree on a greater good. Our goal is the same right. for people to be and to exist and to not experience bias and prejudice. And that was honestly a very similar goal that my posse set forth to achieve at Brandeis. I was in student government. I was the student rep to the board of trustees. I had conversations about institutional change when I was 19 and 20 that Literally the same type of work that I sat on the other side of when I was 19, I now lead now. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, 
Darnisa offers advice to anyone preparing for a career in equity work. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Darnisa Amante-Jackson. She helps organizations become more equitable. As we said at the top of the episode, interest in this type of work is at an all-time high on LinkedIn. So I asked Darnisa what people need to consider when preparing to do it. When I started, you know, I thought DEI was all one type of work, and it's not. So if you think about DEI, what it really is, it's long-term organizational change. So anyone who is studying organizational culture, shifting culture, teams, conflict resolution, negotiation, long-term visioning, These are all skills that DEI experts need. So think of the bucket as organizational management. I can't necessarily tell you what to study, but I will say being an anthropologist has been singularly the most important career choice of my life. Anthropology for our listeners is the study of people. It is the study of systems and culture. It's the understanding of how culture changes over time. And in my opinion, anthropology is one of the best disciplines to support you understanding culture. The second big one I would say is system level leadership. So I'm not asking you to walk on the same path that I have, but I feel like because I know how to implement change from the top, I can see the entire system and culture for what it is because of anthropology. And anthropology calls us to interpersonal skills with people. I am accustomed to interviewing people and talking to people to understand their culture. And those were probably the most foundational things for me in my equity journey. So for those of you listening, here are some of the different buckets that uh, corporations or clients are looking for. They're looking for vendors who can see their culture, to see it in its ugly and in its beautiful. Remember from our first podcast, you can be both 
ugly and beautiful at the same time. We are both the villain and the hero in this story. We are both. And vendors are looking for consultants who can see both. They're looking for people to help them realize that equity does not happen in one arrival. You normally take eight to 10 years to get to equity. The best minds for this work are people who can plot change over multiple cultures, over multiple transitions of leadership to help an organization reach their end goal. So if you can see the end, if you know how to strategize and organize people for change, it's excellent. And the third thing that people are really looking for are people who can do data work. For a lot of us, people don't think equity can be measured. They are often looking for quantitative change. So they're looking for the change of retention, the impact on the bottom line. For every listener here, hear it and hear it well. The first equitable change is qualitative. It's people change. So we need folks who can measure qualitative and quantitative growth over time. Talk to me about what it means to measure qualitative growth, because I think that's so key. Qualitative data is the kind of data that doesn't necessarily come from like a test. It's the data that you're measuring on feelings. It's the data that you're measuring around felt and perceived impact. So if you think about qualitative, qualitative is anything that's measuring climate. It's measuring questions like, do you feel more connected to this workplace? Do you see yourself in your work's mission and vision? Do you see yourself in your advancement pipeline? Right. And these are not the kind of questions that we typically ask, but it is that qualitative change that actually leads to the retention change. It leads to the hiring impact change. It leads to the lessening of turnover. But we usually look for that secondary data first before we look for the felt and perceived feelings of change. So, Darnisa, so... Take me back. So you've got the background in anthropology. You choose to go to Harvard and get your doctorate. How did your time there shift what you thought you would be doing with that doctorate after? When I first started, and I was an elementary school teacher before that, I taught fourth grade, I realized that the next great revolution on behalf of children would come at the mindset change of adults. That's a really hard thing to say. I think the culture of adult is alive and well and often prevents us from doing important work. So here's the culture of adult. I'm an adult, right? I'm not implicating us in being bad, but it's really hard for adults to change. It's hard for us to admit that we don't know what we don't know. And when we realize we don't know, it's very hard to say we didn't know. Most adults don't feel like they get to grow up Most of us feel like we're stuck or static. And because we are old enough to know how long change takes, I find sometimes some of us are jaded by actually achieving the end goal. But our youth are urgent in a different way. They've got ideas and they're innovative. And most of us as adults have been taught that youth are not to be heard. They are to be seen. And so when I started Harvard, my first goal was parent engagement. 
I thought that my work was going to be focused just on families, just on the adults at home, right? And helping to build this different sort of bridge between school and community and classroom. And I very quickly realized parents weren't enough. So I find it's not that my why changed, the how changed. So at first I thought the work was just parents. So I created this framework for parent engagement that I then did some work with in Boston public schools. And it was an amazing learning experience. And then I realized it's not enough if you build all of this capacity with families, if there's still change that needs to happen in the school building. And you know, I discovered something powerful. When I talked to students, they felt like they had no power. When I talked to teachers, they felt like they had no power. When I talked to the coaches that coach teachers, they felt like they had no power. Principals felt the same way. Superintendents felt the same way. Everyone felt disempowered to make the change. And I said, I think my work has to be really helping and supporting people in truly believing that they can do the thing that they've been called to do. I have found that my work has morphed into a racial equity ghostbuster, right? Like I'm here to actually call things by their name with care. I'm sort of the strategic interventionist Indiana Jones. Okay, so I'm coming in there like an archaeologist. I want to see the context. I want to find the archive. But I have found that I've also become a motivational speaker. So many people are discouraged and they don't think the change is coming. And I'm just here to spread the good news that the change is already here. We just haven't talked about it, right? So that's <laughs> been the expansion. It's been like how much I'm encouraging people to stay in the work, to not back off of it. You described a school system in a way that I think it, it's worth pausing on. And you can talk about it in relation to a school system, but I think you can also talk about it in relation to lots of other systems. It's bureaucracy. It's the mm -hmm. kind of the deep system that leaves everybody at every level, leader or not, stopped up and feeling like they don't actually have the power to make things better in any way for the people they're serving or, or the people they're reporting to. How, when you work within a system like that, do you hold space for the possibility of equity work? I'll start here. Bureaucracy to me is a temporary blockade. Bureaucracy, I find, is trying to maintain traditions. It's trying to maintain systems and processes, usually because we haven't seen another system work well. The first important thing to dismantle bureaucracy is to present an alternative model for engagement not necessarily a business model, right? It could be an HR strategy. It could be a cultural strategy. But when people actually see examples of success, bureaucracy tends to lessen and weaken. When you are intention to train the leadership first. Yep. And so yep. supporting leadership early, helping leaders to see the alternative end goal, presenting them with best practices that actually work for team culture, for operational culture, for my folks out here from philanthropic organizations. We're having this whole conversation about decolonizing philanthropy, right? We do have to start at the top because bureaucracy is normally trying to keep a system safe from its own changing. Insert something that's a catalyzer to make this system see itself so it actually wants to change. 
that's a beautiful way to describe what a bureaucracy is. You're right. It exists in order to protect itself from change. And there are real reasons that that serves us. Mm -hmm. And also real reasons that it doesn't, of course. That's right. Bureaucracies often don't allow for innovation. They don't allow for multiple perspectives. They don't allow for bottom-up implementation of change, right? It normally comes from the leadership down. So bureaucracy has a function. I don't think they're all evil. <laughs> some of them, some of them don't feel very good when you're in them though, but I don't think their intentions are often evil. I think to the point earlier, right? Their intentions are to maintain normalcy, whatever that is for your organization or industry. And what I'm saying is equity is the business of disrupting normalcy because we're naming that normalcy comes from somewhere. And we often have a view on who or what gets to be allowed to be normal. Right. So Darnisa, when we spoke six months ago, that was a particular moment in our in our country and in our culture. I'm curious what's changed over the last six months. Hmm. Six months ago, right, with the murder of George Floyd and then the awakenings around Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, I think we realized for the first time that organizations had to put a new lens on themselves. So I think last year was a reckoning. Now, here's the thing, and I want to be gentle with our audience. Reckonings are not bad things. This is not a biblical reckoning. Reckonings are the moments when you realize multiple things can be true at the same time. That at the same time I could be a liberally minded person who is Black is the same time that I hold bias and I can say things that hurt people. I am both. And I think last year's work was organizations reckoning that they had multiple cultures going on in their organizations, whether they knew it or not. And those multiple cultures were doing harm. So last year's work felt like getting leadership prepared to understand the journey the organizations were going to be on defining the challenges, and then prioritizing like what would go first. I think the priority in the big work right now is really focusing on internal culture, particularly the ability of teams to have positive discourse, difficult conversations. And I want to say this uh, gently because we all come from different affiliations here, right? This is not about encouraging anybody to believe anything in particular. What I'm saying is conflict is a beautiful thing when it is facilitated well. Yeah. And people have to learn to sit in each other's differences again. We have forgotten how to be graceful in our difference. And I am urging us for a return or maybe a bringing about for the first time of true empathy. This is not coddling. But organizations, I think, are not growing in their current DEI work because we want the staff to have transformative conversations in absence of conflict. Conflict is not yelling. It is satisficing. Okay, the word is satisfice. It is the combination of satisfying and sufficient. Right? People have to be able to have satisfying and sufficient conversations about what they believe. Equity assumes that every single perspective in your organization would be helping to define your journey together. Equity is not mandating one mindset. It says we want to coexist in these multiple mindsets. And I think that a lot of organizations have shied away from the productive yet transformative conflict. Have you ever seen a powerful change happen 
on the other side of silence and tranquility? I have not. So why do we expect organizations to transform like that? I would venture to guess that inside a lot of organizations right now, what you find is silence and fear. There's a desire to have these conversations. A lot of people hiring for DEI Mm -hmm. inside their organizations and outside their organizations. A lot of discussion about diversity, which as you point out in our first conversation is just the first itty bitty step to this work. But that is where we move to. And yet internally, I think people are finding it perhaps more difficult to have a lot of these interpersonal conversations and shying away from it. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest challenge for a lot of organizations is they haven't prioritized conversations. Y'all hear me and hear me well. Conversations are work. They yeah. are work. The ability to sit in non-closure is also work. So it's we're not just having a conversation to go to a quick PD where we learn something for an hour. No, people change when you allow them to have time to process their learning. If we have not carved out things like affinity spaces, if we don't have norms or brave space, so brave space, folks, is different than safe space. See, safe space assumes that everyone has to feel safe. And I'll tell you the hard thing, there are a lot of people who don't feel safe in the norm of safe space. They don't feel comfortable enough to speak. Brave spaces are spaces that are created that allow for productive discourse. So you encourage people to share their truest thoughts. We set up norms and conditions around feedback and helping people to understand the impact of something you said. Brave spaces assume that you are going to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And if you don't create affinity space, if you don't create brave space, if we don't have prioritization around culture, people will not talk. We have all been acculturated to leave our skeletons at home. No, I want you to sit in this because you expect me to work like this all day. And I just need you to know that type of conversation is not sort of taking over or ruining someone's day. It is about creating the space for us to truly be empathetic to the way that the world shows up on different people, that there are folks coming to work who have been hurt on the way to work just because of how they look. And they can't tell you and they should be able to tell you, because if you expect them to work in those conditions, they should expect you to be able to hear the full truth of how they're living. Yeah. And it's not about bullying It's about when you know how the world is treating me, you actually understand why equity matters. Equity is not a checklist. It's not political complacency. It's not about ameliorating problems for people. It's about saying this world still doesn't treat everybody in the way that it should. And it's deeper than race. It also includes race. But this is about ableism. It's about cognitive learning differences. It's about sexism. It's about ethnicity. It's about different language groups. It's about how much money you grew up with where you grew up. Oppression doesn't care who you are. It oppresses all of us. The difference is some of us get more oppression around race and others are getting more oppression around things that are not race. But every single person is coming to work with a story. They should be able to at least have space to discuss those stories. It doesn't feel good when your organization tells you they're doing equity, but you don't have a chance to do your own storytelling and sharing about the kind of equity you need. 
So that's why these spaces matter even now more than other. I think it just makes it clear why equity is really beneficial for everyone and not just a few. So Darnisa, as we as we draw to a close, I want to think about what you hope for in 2021. My hope for the year, I think the biggest one, is that we continue to work on how we communicate with each other. Now, communication to me is a long-term hope, but I want us to be able to have conversations by the end of the year where I could tell my story and narrative about growing up in East New York, Brooklyn, at the same time somebody from a rural community could tell me about the way that they lived there, at the same time that someone else from someplace completely else, and we can leave that conversation feeling a sense of shared solidarity. I am hoping for empathetic listening and solidarity. That was Dr. Darnisa Amante-Jackson. She calls herself a racial equity ghostbuster. I think it's a fitting description. Check out her work online at darnisaamante.com. There you can find information on her philosophies and the programs she leads. This week on Hello Monday Office Hours, we're talking about working in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. If you work in the space, please bring something you wish you'd known when you started. And if you're new to the space, bring questions. We'll convene at our usual time, Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. And starting this Wednesday, this part's new, you'll find us in a new place. We're moving to the LinkedIn news page. To find us there, follow LinkedIn News on LinkedIn or email us at hellomonday@linkedin.com for the link. If this episode resonates with you, please share it with a friend. If you're a Hello Monday fan, please rate and review us. It really helps. Thanks, folks. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Riando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor sit with us in multiple perspectives. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. Um, I see it like a little cute. Is it like a dog behind you? Yeah, that's my mini poodle. (laughs) I love him so much. Hi, buddy. Yeah, so that's oh God, for folks. That's Scooter Sasha Monroe Jackson. Now there's a name. <laughs> yep, Scooter. Also, aka Scoot Magoots, aka Scooty Pie, <laughs> aka Scott uh, Scooter McStuffins. <laughs>